Father, we're so grateful that we serve a king who reigns forever. That there is not a day that you aren't seated on your throne. That we can worship you when times are great, when times are horrible. Lord, we just stand before you this evening, this morning, this time that we are gathered together to worship you, our Savior King, to celebrate the season of reflecting on the time that Jesus came to dwell with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, sit down. I mean, (laughs) you can have a seat. Uh, Is that better? No, uh, you can stay standing if you want to. Uh, Oh, man, that was was rough, guys. I'm sorry about that. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So as you know, today it is the the Christmas season, right? Uh, And for much of my childhood and adulthood, um, I'm, I could be what is classified as a Grinch, I guess. I mean, Corey's smiling. She knows about it. I'm not really a fan of the decorations. I'm not a fan of the lights and the trees, the music. All those things at this time generally just rub me the wrong way. And I know that to many of you, that's like blasphemy, right? If you had your Christmas tree up for th- before Thanksgiving, I'm sure that you're kind of mad at me right now. But I just want to let you know how I am. But in my, because in my heart and soul, right, I do believe that on some level, these can all be distractions, right, for the true reason that we celebrate this season. So what I want to do for this month is I want to really focus on Jesus. And I'm not going to preach your typical Christmas passages, right? We're not going to look at the narrative in Luke. Not those, not that those are bad. I just want us to get a robust view of who Jesus is. So we're going to look all the way back into the old Testament during the Christmas season. We're going to reflect on God's preparation for the hearts of many. Advent is something that before I became, um, well, before we actually visited our church in North Carolina that we were part of for a few years, I never really celebrated Advent. I never thought about Advent. I never even really heard the word Advent. It was at that point in time when I finally heard it. And as early as, and what I came to learn is as early as the fourth century, that's like 300 AD, the church has celebrated Advent. And so if you don't know, if you've not heard this word Advent before, um, you're not alone. But I want to define what Advent is. And Advent is the period of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas. So it's just celebrating Christmas. It's just a different word for celebrating Jesus Christ. And it's also Advent is we're looking forward to his second Advent. That is when he comes again to rescue his people. The Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. They were longing for a Savior. And at this time of year is the time of year that we celebrate the coming King It is this time of year when we think about and we focus on the birth of Jesus, not just the Savior to the Jews, but the Savior of the world for everyone who will believe. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to look at four different Psalms from the Old Testament. This morning, we're going to examine Psalm 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on or open them up to Psalm chapter 2. And then next week, we'll look at Psalm 45. The following week, we'll look at Psalm 72. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Psalm 110. 
In the corpus of the Psalms, right, there's 150 of them, and, and a lot of them fall into different categories. These Psalms that we're going to look at are called the Royal Psalms. They are for a king. They were performed in the presence of kings and dignitaries. They were the, now the kings of Israel were often called, when they were, were titled, they were called the anointed one, right? If you've heard that phrase before, the anointed one, or the anointed of God. Those are how they would be classified. And these Psalms would be sung over those who are being anointed to be king. The word for anointed in Hebrew is, is Messiah, right? Or Messiah, as we say in, it's, it's Messiah in, in Hebrew, but Messiah is where we get the word Messiah. So when you hear about Jesus, Messiah, we use it as just a transliteration of the Hebrew word into the English. And then also we get the translated word of the uh, Greek Messiah. So for the Hebrews, Messiah was translated into Greek as Christos, right? And Christos is our word Christ, right? So we got Messiah and Christ. It's just transliterations of how we say those words in English, but they mean the same thing, the anointed one of God. So as you're reading your New Testament and you come across the phrase Jesus Christ, just know that the Christ part is not his last name. He was not Jesus Christ as a last name. It was Christ as a title, the title of Messiah, the title of anointed one of God, right? He is chosen by God, the father as king over all the earth. So when we read these royal Psalms, though they are talking about the kings of Israel, they were written for a people. They were talking about the kings of Israel. In most cases, specifically David and his line, they are pointing to and foreshadowing, right? The coming of the Jesus, the true king. The royal psalms are composed and written by David or for David, pointing to the reality that the Davidic lineage, that is his offspring, his descendants are going to be the pathway of blessing, the path to a true and better anointed one, the path to the true and better Messiah. Jesus is that true and better better Messiah, the anointed one. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the perfect Messiah. And one of the things I really want us to take away from this short Advent series is that Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see the fingerprints of Jesus, the foreshadowing of Jesus, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus isn't plan B for the Godhead. It was from the beginning that Jesus was going to die for his people. From the beginning, God knew what had to be done, and we can see that even in the songbook of the Old Testament, in the Psalms. The plan and the purpose for King Jesus is written on the pages, not just of the New Testament, but of the Old Testament as well. This morning's text in Psalm 2 is asking the question, who's the boss? Or who's in charge? That's the the question that is being presented in Psalm chapter 2. Who's the boss? As I was thinking about this psalm over the last couple of weeks, I couldn't help but think about the dynamic in our home and probably in many of your home, especially if you have children. Oftentimes, the, the, after giving a kid instructions, right, they want to go, they want to say what? Well, you're not the boss. You're not the boss. You're not the boss of me. Or if, you, if they ask you something and you give them a response that they don't like, what do they go? They go and tell, talk to the other parent because they're the boss, right? Um, it's only conveniently who's the boss, right, Levi? Um, here's what's happening. They're wanting to submit to the authority that most closely relates to what they want, 
right? That's what they're wanting to do. They, they don't really want to submit. They want to get what they want, but they know that they aren't in charge. And so they want to submit to the authority that is closely aligned to who they are and what they want. Because in general, people don't like authority, right? From a very young age, we instinctively want to do our own thing. We don't want people to tell us how to live. We don't want rules and guidelines. We don't want limits and boundaries. We want freedom, the ever elusive freedom, freedom to choose freedom from consequences, freedom to do whatever we want. This is pervasive and it's universal. So any authority can be seen as restricting and something that needs to be fought against. We need to fight against that authority. This is what we see in Psalm two. But before we get to Psalm 2, I need us to understand something about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They are the doorway to the Psalter. If you read these two Psalms, it shows you exactly what the psalmist is trying to highlight in the Psalms. They're the gateway to understanding the whole book of Psalms. When the book of Psalms was originally curated and put together, these two Psalms were placed at the beginning for this specific reason, because these are the lenses by which we are going to examine everything that is written in the rest of the book of Psalms. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time understanding that. I don't have the time to unpack that. But these two Psalms, we see two people, two types of people in these two Psalms, right? People either live on the path of righteousness, living in submission to God, or they live on the path of the fool walking against God, walking against how he designed life. We talked about this extensively as I was going through the book of Ecclesiastes earlier at the beginning of this year, that there were only two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. The path of the righteous walk on the path following after God and the path of the wicked are those who don't follow after God. So both in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, it shows us how if you live a life following God, you will be blessed. But if you live in rebellion against him, you will face his wrath. In fact, at the end of both of these Psalms, there are parallel verses to one another. If you look at Psalm chapter one, verse six, it says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And Psalm chapter two, verse 12 says, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy or blessed. Knowing this framework gets us ready to analyze and dive into the importance of Psalm 2. This Psalm specifically is a Psalm that announces the coronation of a king. If you don't know what a coronation is, you can watch Frozen. I'm just kidding. A coronation is the installation of a ruler over a kingdom. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance around a coronation, but it's, it's an important time for us to look at and see that this guy or this person is going to be the ruler of a kingdom. And I know that you may be asking, what does Psalm 2, a psalm about the coronation of a king, have to do with Christmas? Well, that's a good question. It has to do with Jesus being the foremost and perfectly anointed one of the Father, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the one that will come or has come and will come again. The whole scripture points to Jesus. Now, this psalm in particular is a beautiful picture of that coronation of the king. It can be split into four different parts. So if you're a note taker, verses one through three, talk about the people hating God. Verses four through six, it's God's response to the people. 
verses 7 through 9 is the king's coronation, and verses 10 and 12 is an appeal to the rebellious. So before we open up and we look at these sections, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we can examine your word, that we can, and in examination of your word, we can see how great and glorious, magnificent and mighty you are. How gracious and loving, compassionate you are, but how much you still uphold justice. Lord, we want to see see you as you present yourself in the scriptures. Help us to have an open mind, a heart, soul, so that we can worship you as who you are and not who we want you to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter one or Psalm chapter two, verses one through three says this begins. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Right here. We see some rebellion happening in these first few verses. We see a rebellious people, people who hate God and his chosen one one, his anointed one and his chosen people. The nations and the people are raging against God. But the question is why, why are they raging against God? Why do the people hate God? They hate him because of his authority, because of his power. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to worship him. Recognizing and submitting to God's authority isn't the natural thing to do. Instead, our default position is to rebel against him, to fight against him, and to use any reason, no matter how ridiculous it is, to justify our rebellion against him. This has been true since the Garden of Eden. Submitting to God and his design for life means denying what we want. It means having to lay aside our own desires and let him rule and lead us. And for many people, this feels like chains, right? It feels like ropes binding us. Most of humanity has bought the lie that true freedom is being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want to. But that's not freedom. It's still bondage. We think we are free, but in reality, we are bound to and in bondage to sin. Sin like selfishness, pride, and greed bound us so tight that they don't want to let go. And the sin that binds us wants to keep us there. It wants to keep dragging us down. I love this quote. It says this, and sin always takes us further than we want to go and keeps us longer than we want to stay. If we have given, if we are not in Christ, we are bound to sin. And yet we like to think that this bondage is freedom because it makes us feel good. It allows us to be impulsive instead of thoughtful It satisfies the immediate need. And this isn't just true for us. It's true for all who are bound up because of their sin. The only way to be free from bondage is to submit to God's authority. And yet we see authority as worse than bondage we find ourselves in. This is the response of the kings to God and his anointed one. They don't want God's authority. They want their own authority. And they will do anything to try to get it. These kings of the earth stand firm against God and they don't want to be alone. So what do they do? They conspire together. They believe there is strength in numbers. They believe that God can't stand against them if they stand together. They think there's power in the masses. But even here in the opening verses, the author of this psalm tells us that it's all vain. They plot in vain. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Their plot 
This word is a very interesting word. A better understanding of this word would be to meditate or to chew on or to mumble, that they constantly think about and think of ways to stand against the Lord. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, when it says, instead, of his, instead his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he made it, meditates on it day and night. So we see two different types of meditation here. We see the righteous man who's meditating on the word of God, and we see the rebellious people who are meditating on plotting against God. So instead of being wise men who delight and meditate on the word of God, these kings and people meditate on how to live in rebellion against him. Their very heart is against God and his people. In fact, what's interesting is that this verse is used in the New Testament. This specific verse, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain, is used in the New Testament as a comfort to believers. To build the confidence of in God's plan. You see, in the book of Acts, Peter looks back at these verses and attributes them to the ones who crucified Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, we read this. You said through the Holy Spirit, you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David, our father, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact... In this city, so they're preaching the gospel in the city of Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So Peter and the other followers of Jesus see the importance of Psalm chapter two in the life of Jesus. They see that the nations raged against the Holy One. They, they plotted against God, that they decided that it was a good idea to crucify Jesus. They thought that they could conquer God by crucifying Jesus. And these believers are walking around and they notice the beauty of God's plan and the purposes for life, burial, death, resurrection of Jesus in these verses. But what about this passage gave them confidence? It obviously wasn't just that they were raging against them. The answer is found in the next set of verses in verses two through six or four through six. And it says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So we get a divine response from Jesus to these, or from God for, to these kings who are raging against him. Here we read that God is watching all the people of the earth. He is seeing the rebellion. He is witnessing all of their plots. He is hearing their mummerings. He is knowing their actions. And what does he do? How does he respond? Does he panic? Does he freak out? He doesn't worry about their plans and he, their plots and their desires. No. What does he do? He stays seated. And he laughs at their plans. He's amused by their raging. Their plots are of no significance to him. It doesn't matter what the kings of the earth try to do. It doesn't matter how people respond to God's plan. God isn't shaken. He isn't caught off guard. He isn't worried. He isn't bothered by the raging nations. How can he be so calm? How can he actually just sit back and be amused by the nations that are against him? It's because he knows, regardless of how they feel, regardless of how they think or act, he is in absolute, total, and complete control 
of every situation. There is nothing that the nations can do that are ever going to thwart his plans. There is no stumbling block or barricade that they can lay before the Lord that will stop him from accomplishing his mission. He is the true and ultimate king. He is the ruler of all the earth. And the people and the kings of the earth can try as they might, but they will never accomplish what they set out to do. Think about it this way. No matter how much power, influence, and might someone on earth may have, nothing is going to stop the Lord. This is what we talked about several weeks ago when we talked about God's sovereignty that he is in ultimate control, that he is the point, plan, and purpose of all creation, that he will not and cannot let his creation stop him from achieving what he has set out to do. So we have confidence in the plan of the Lord, knowing that there is nothing, there is no one that can stand in the way of him accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23. He says this, Talking about God, he says, he reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. There is no power, no authority on earth that isn't first given by God and he can take it away. He is in ultimate control. You see, any power, any authority, any influence that a nation or a people has is derived from God alone and he can take it back. And he knows how it's going to be used. And he is the one in charge. It's kind of like those kids who want to fight back against everything. You're not in charge. You don't get to make the rules. I get to make the rules. God's like, you guys can do whatever you want to, but there are going to be consequences for your rebellion. And not only does the Lord mock the futile and feeble attempts of the nation, he also lets them know that his wrath is coming. He is angry at the disposition of the rebellious. They are going to get what they deserve, and he's going to show them just how much power, might, and majesty he has. Though they may think they're stopping God, the day of judgment is coming. There will be a day of reckoning for all those who continue to live in sin and rebel against God. And there is hope. There are those who stand in rebellion against the Lord, those who rage against his goodness and his authority that can and will come to submit to him. I can't help but think about there's a a little known character in the, in the new Testament. His name's Paul, right? He's a persecutor of the church. He's going out and he's finding people to arrest and kill. And we read in the book of Acts that he was going around seeking and searching all those who worshiped Jesus so that he can imprison them. He was even a bystander at the first martyrs martyring. But God was in control. God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is gracious, saved Paul. He saved him. Not because Paul is someone special, not because of who Paul is or what Paul did, but it was because it was God's good pleasure to save him. It was God's plan and purpose to save Paul. And so we see that even those who rage against God and rage against his Messiah are not outside of God's grace. If they turn to him, if they submit to him, they will be saved from his wrath and that he's going to pour out. But if we continue in our wickedness, if we continue in our rebellion, we will have to face his wrath. 
For those of us who have believed in God and have trusted in Jesus, we can know that there will be those who stand against us because they stand against him. We can know that the reason that they may hate us is because they hate Jesus. We can know and hold fast to the truth that God is going to win even when we're uncomfortable. It doesn't matter what the enemies of God try, God will and has overcome. So we need to remind ourselves that God is in complete control, that he is never not at the wheel. And we know this because God has installed his king, King Jesus on that holy mountain. I want us to think about the gospels of Jesus. Satan thought he had won. The enemies of Jesus thought that they had silenced Jesus and his disciples. They thought that the crucifixion of Christ, that the battle had been won, that Jesus was defeated. But three days later, on that beautiful Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave. Though the enemy thought he had won, Jesus rose, vindicating and proving that he is the son of God who accomplished the mission that he had been sent to do by the father. The beginning of the coronation of King Jesus started at the cross and now he is sitting at the right hand of the father in glory. Though the whole plan of the crucifixion looked like God's plan had gone awry. The truth is Jesus knew that he was sent to die. He knew that the crucifixion was going to be the place that redeeming work happened. And he also knew that he would rise again. He knew that through his obedience and sacrifice that the Trinitarian plan of redemption would succeed. So we can trust in God's plan. We can trust in God's control. When everything looks dark, when everything looks like chaos, we can know that God has not abdicated the throne, that he is still there controlling and overseeing everything that's happening. When everything looks crazy and chaotic, we can know and rest in God's knowledge and his plan his sovereignty. Knowing and trusting God's plan means primarily knowing the King. Psalm chapter two, verse seven, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Here we see the, the coronation words of the King. Here the king is speaking about these words from God's perspective. Something we need to know about the kings of Israel is that when they were crowned king, they were now representatives of God on earth. That's why the language of son is used in here, here in verse 7. The use of the father and son language is used to rely or relay the meaning of God's authority that has been bestowed to the one who has been crowned as king. So to simplify, to be Israel's king was to be God's son. So we talked about this earlier. This is a type and a foreshadow of Jesus. He is God's one and only son. Jesus's rule and reign are different than other, the, the other kings of Israel. And the definitive difference is the resurrection. Jesus's divine sonship was demonstrated at the resurrection. And you may be thinking, that we're supposed to be thinking about Jesus's coming the, at Christmas, that this is an Advent sermon, that this Christmas sermon series that I'm talking about the resurrection, you're like, Josh, why are you talking about the resurrection? Here's what to, we need to know. Christmas is only good news because Easter is true. 
Christmas is only good news because Easter is true. Christmas only has meaning because of the resurrection. If it wasn't for Jesus' resurrection, we wouldn't have anything to celebrate. Jesus isn't simply a baby in the manger. He is a resurrected king who is reigning over his creation. Not only that, but the New Testament authors saw the importance of this phrase, that, that you are my son and today I have become your father. This phrase is alluded to and spoken by God himself to Jesus at his baptism, crowning him as king. In Mark 1.11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We also see this in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3. And then at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 verse 35, then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. The sonship language is important because it shows us that Jesus is the representation of God the Father on earth. Not only at the baptism and the transfiguration, but at his resurrection. We see in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, God has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus as is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Jesus is the truest king. He is the one who reigns forever. In all of history, there has never been a king like Jesus. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the perfect, holy, and righteous king. He is the one worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. He is the one who was raised up to rule and reign over all the earth. And here's what I want us to know about Jesus' kingship. It was fully intentional. He is the son who has come to reign. Now we can look at this and and some have it said that Jesus' rule and reign was only limited to a certain group of people, that it was just for the Jewish people, that he is their king. But they're missing a big chunk of Jesus' purpose. It wasn't just to save the Jewish people, but it was also to save all people, all nations who believe. Look again at verse 8. It says this, Ask of me and I will make, what? The nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations and the ends of the earth are the possessions of Jesus. From Louise, Texas to Jerusalem, from Moscow, Russia to Mexico City, all those who believe, all those who submit, all those who recognize Jesus as king are his inheritance. That is why missions is so important. That is why we partner with the SBC and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We want to give those who have given their lives to reach the people with the gospel message. We want to be generous to them. And we can support financially and prayerfully in reaching those unreached people groups so that they will turn and worship Jesus. John Piper has a quote. He's a pastor, or he he was a pastor. He's not anymore, but he has this. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. For all of those who aren't worshiping Jesus, we go and we proclaim the good news so that they will worship him. We go on mission to see people saved. And that's not just internationally. That's not just over there. It's right here. We each know somebody who doesn't know Jesus. We need to be missionaries for him. As his, as since he is our King, we are his ambassadors going out and proclaiming the good news. Why? Because there are going to be consequences for those who continue in rebellion. It says here that they will be crushed by the iron scepter like pottery. This is the wrath of God being poured out on the rebellious ones. Those who don't and won't turn to him. And I want us to notice this. Who's doing the crushing? It's Jesus. 
He's the one who's going to crush the raging nations. He is the one who's going to pour out God's wrath on those who don't repent and believe. Now, it wasn't until the last few years or so that I started to think about the power and the might and the justice of Jesus. Oftentimes we think of Jesus and all we think about is the compassion, love, and gentleness of Jesus. And in those thoughts, we tend to think that Jesus is soft, that he's just a cuddly teddy bear we want to wrap our arms around. But what we see here is that whether we want to admit it or not, that's not the way that we, Jesus is presented in the scriptures. You see, for many, Jesus is an effeminate male who is spreading the love and peace, right? But I want us to know that Jesus is gentle, but he's not soft. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read that book, it's amazing. It's about, uh, it's an allegory about, um, to mirror kind of the gospel message of Jesus' life. And Jesus in the, in the story is a character named Aslan, and he's a lion. And one of the girls in the book is speaking with a beaver. Yeah, it's one of those. He, she's speaking with a beaver, right? And they have a conversation like this. Aslan is a lion. This is a beaver speaking. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather, they're British, but I can't do a British accent. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said the beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. Here's how we have to think about Jesus. He's not safe, but he's good. To those who love and trust him, to those who follow after him, we find refuge. But to those who stand against him, they will be shattered. He is good and he is just. He demonstrated his love on the cross and he will pour out his wrath on those who don't believe. So how are we to respond to the king? The psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this plea to those who read the psalm. Verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Here we conclude with a call to action in the psalm. This call to action leads to either honoring the king or rebelling against him. The whole earth is receiving the invitation of worship. Like the gospel message, we need to know that the bad news is bad, bad, bad before we understand how good, good, good the good news is. There is wrath that is going to be poured out on the rebellious. But there is grace that is going to be given to those who submit to God. And the wise thing for people to do is to receive Jesus's instruction, to listen to him, to follow after him, to serve the Lord with awe and wonder, to rejoice and to tremble. This means that we look at God and his son for who he truly is, that there is joy and salvation, that there is unlimited power in God's hand, that when we stand before him, we need to know that there is power in life and death, that he holds the power of life and death. So we stand before him, not presuming upon him, but grateful in love and mercy and grace. And the way that we do that is by paying homage to the son. The literal translation of this phrase is, is probably in most translations. It says this, kiss the son, kiss the son. So we can either kiss the son in rebellion like Judas did 
turning our backs on him, demonstrating that we don't want or need him, or we can kiss him in love and affection, devotion and submission to honor him. And the way that we respond to him, the way that we choose to kiss the son will either protect us from his wrath or condemn us to his wrath. I love what one preacher said about this. He says, there is no refuge from Jesus, only refuge in him. No refuge from Jesus, only refuge in him. So you are either safe from his wrath in him, or you are doomed to face his wrath outside of him. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and trusted in him, today is the day that you honor the son. You recognize that his goodness, his grace, his love and compassion, or you face his wrath and condemnation. Now, if you are a believer, be satisfied in him. We should kiss the son with love and affection. We should find our satisfaction in him and him alone. Because if we have seen King Jesus, he is in charge and we either bow down in submission to him or we will be made to bow down in our rebellion. I want to close with a reading from Philippians chapter two, verses nine through 11. It says this, for this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Where do you stand today? Are you honoring the son in love or are you cursing him in rebellion? I beg you to submit to him today, to find joy and freedom in Jesus today. Now as a response this morning, we're going to have a time of reflection as we take the Lord's Supper. So if my my deacons would go grab that. I want you to know that the Lord's Supper is only for those who have kissed the Son in affection, who have seen the glory of God and bowed down in submission to Him. It is for those who love King Jesus. If you haven't done that, then I pray that you would just let the plate pass you by. If you don't take the supper, no one's going to judge you here. I want you to know that there is something much greater than this cup and bread. There is fellowship, forgiveness, and life in the arms of Jesus. I want to pray and then they'll start passing it out. Father God, I pray for this time of reflection. I pray for this time of thanksgiving, of reflecting on your body that was broken and your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, Lord, that we would take this seriously, that we would recognize that if we have submitted to you, then we can partake and we can rejoice. Looking back at your sacrifice and also looking forward to the time when you come again, the second advent. I pray this morning, Lord, that we would just continue to reflect on how good and gracious you are while at the same time knowing that if we don't belong to you, we're going to face your wrath. It's going to be poured out on us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.